Let's take our Bibles over to Matthew chapter 18, please. Matthew 13, rather. Matthew 13. We're going to be considering this morning verses 44 through 46. Now, as Jesus reveals the mysteries of the kingdom in Matthew 13, He does so in the form of eight parables. He reveals these mysteries, or what we've discovered to be sacred secrets, only to those equipped with spiritual eyes, spiritual ears, and spiritual hearts. These things are not for the spiritually blind, nor for the spiritually deaf, nor for the hard-hearted. Now the particular mysteries of the kingdom explain what happens to God's kingdom during this present age. During the past age, the kingdom of God was promised. When Jesus appeared, He promised, He offered to establish the kingdom. Nevertheless, that kingdom was rejected by the religious leaders of Israel. The establishment of God's kingdom on earth will not happen now until the future age, the age to come. And so now Jesus reveals that during the present age, this age in which we live, while the physical aspect of the kingdom is on hold, the spiritual aspect of God's kingdom is still very much present. The eight parables of Jesus can be divided into four groups or phases. Phase one, we saw the inauguration of the kingdom. We saw the two parables there, the sower and the soils, and the wheat and the weeds. The theme of those two parables is planting. In the sower and the soils, the spiritual kingdom begins with planting the gospel seed in the hearts of humanity. In the wheat and weeds parable, we see the spiritual kingdom begin with the planting of the wheat, representing the church. At the same time, Satan the enemy plants weeds that pseudo-believers amongst the church. And until the ears of grain or the fruit appears, it is difficult, difficult to discern the difference between the wheat and the weeds, or the regenerated and the unregenerated. At the end of this present age, Jesus tells us that He is going to send forth His angels, they are going to gather the church into heaven, and they're going to cast the pseudo-believers into hell. The phase two parables represents the opposition to the kingdom, as demonstrated in the parables of the mustard seed and the leaven. Despite the opposition, the kingdom is going to grow from a small, meager beginning into a large, magnificent organism. Like that small mustard seed that grows into a large tree-like bush, the church is going to grow into a mighty kingdom. And just as the birds find protection and prosperity in the branches of the mustard plant, so the Gentile nations will find the same in God's kingdom. And like that bit of leaven that permeates an entire lump of dough, so the little morsel of the kingdom, i.e. the church, it will permeate the world with the gospel. You'll recall that the church began in A.D. 29 with just over 3,000 souls. It existed nowhere else but Jerusalem. Slowly, however, the church began to permeate the world. 
Within its first two years, the church expanded into beyond Jerusalem into Judea and Samaria. And now, 20 years later, the church permeated the entire known world. And today, 2,000 years later, the church is still permeating the world with the gospel, despite opposition to the same. And then we come now, today, to the phase three parables, represented by the hidden treasure and the costly pearl. In these, phase, in these two phase three parables, we see the people of the kingdom. The people of the kingdom. Jesus explains here that the spiritual kingdom is comprised of two people groups, Israel and the church. The theme of this phase is value. The treasure, the pearl. Israel, the church, have great value. And so Jesus presents here in Matthew 13, verses 44 to 46, the hidden treasure, the costly pearl, and the kingdom. The hidden treasure, the costly pearl, and the kingdom. We're going to follow the same format we have followed with each of our previous studies of the parables. We're going to look first at the presentation, and then secondly at the inauguration. So let's begin in verses 44 to 46 of Matthew 13, and let's consider the presentation of the hidden treasure and costly pearl parables. The presentation of the hidden treasure and the costly pearl parables. Now again, Jesus introduces each of these parables with that formulaic phrase, the kingdom of heaven, or the kingdom of God, is like. We've noted previously that that verb, is like, homoeao, means to something that is comparable to something else. They share similar characteristics. In other words, the present state of God's kingdom is comparable to a hidden treasure and to a costly pearl. Let's look at verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field which a man found and hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Now here in this parable, Jesus draws from the financial practices of the Galileans. He begins, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field. Now the term treasure, thesaurus, you know, think of a thesaurus. It's a treasury of words. It comes from the Greek word for treasure, thesaurus. It refers to a repository or a box containing money, jewels, or other valuables. Now in pre-exilic Israel, personal banking was non-existent, Okay. Personal banking was non-existent. Typically, people would bury their valuables in the ground and left were either that or left them with a neighbor. In particular, the Jews would bury their wealth to protect it during wartime. The Jewish historian Josephus reports that the gold and the silver and the rest of that most precious furniture which the Jews had and which the owners had treasured up underground against the uncertain fortunes of war. Now the wealthy would do this with their money. They would divide it into three parts. The first part was for conducting business. The second part of their money was converted into jewels, which they could easily wear or carry if the need to flee arose. The third part, though, they buried in a safe and secret place. Perhaps in a field. Now after the exile... Many of the Jews began to adopt the pagan practice of depositing their wealth or valuables in the temple. 
All the pagan people, that's where they did their banking, at the local pagan temple. And the Jews picked up that practice during the exile, and when they returned to the land, they began doing that. So that by the time of Jesus, what do we find in the temple? The what? Money changers, okay? The bankers. Common sight at the temple of the first century A.D. Nonetheless, a number of Jews still continued that age-old practice of storing their wealth in a jar or box and burying it in the ground. And so when you needed some money, you'd go out at night under the cover of darkness so nobody found out where you were going. You'd dig up your jar or box, you retrieve what you needed, and you'd rebury the rest. Unfortunately, if the person died and had not told anyone where they had buried their wealth, it would be lost until someone else found it. Jesus states in this parable that a man found the treasure and hid it again. Now immediately, many balk at this parable. Maybe, perhaps even some of you have read this parable and you have an uneasy feeling about it. Some have gone so far to claim that Jesus is presenting this parable of immoral or at the best unethical behavior. They argue that this man has no right to the treasure because he found it in someone else's field. They claim that the man should have reported the fine to the field's owner. Therefore, this man must have been unethical or immoral by reburying the treasure and purchasing the field for himself. Now, if that's how you feel, I'd like to to say you have a misinterpretation of this parable in your hand. Ask yourself this question. Would Jesus have compared his kingdom to an unethical or immoral person? The answer is, in short, is no. Jesus would not compare his kingdom to something or someone unethical or immoral. So to view this situation through this lens of immorality or unethicalness is to twist or malign the scripture. You see, we need to understand that under the scrutiny of Jewish culture, his actions were not unethical. They were not immoral, but rather very moral and very ethical. Now, let's begin in God's law. Let's begin in Deuteronomy 23, verses 1 to 3. He says, You shall not see your countryman's ox or his sheep straying away and pay no attention to them. You shall certainly bring them back to your countrymen. Okay, so, you know, if you see your neighbor's uh, cow walking down the street, don't just turn a blind eye to it. You know, go out and try to get it or get some help or at least call him and tell him, Oh, buddy, your cow's walking down the street. If your countryman is not near you, or if you don't know him, well, bring it home to your house. Okay, so you see his cow or his sheep, you don't know where he's at. Well, at the very least, bring it back to your house and wait till you can get him. Then you shall restore it to him uh, when he comes looking for it. You shall do the same with his donkey and with his garment. And likewise with anything lost by your countrymen, which he has lost and you have found. You're not allowed to neglect it. Okay. Now, again, that was the standard law that God set down for lost things. Okay. But that law doesn't cover every situation, nor was it intended to. Okay. So what happens in a case where there is no owner to be found? Perhaps the owner is dead. Perhaps the owner is completely unknown. Well, in such cases, rabbinic law said this. What finds belong to the finder? 
And what fines must one cause to be proclaimed or returned? This was the, this was the standard that they came up with. The fine belongs to the finder if a man finds scattered fruit or scattered money. These belong to the finder. Now you're scratching your head and saying, well, what in the world is scattered fruit and money? Scattered money or scattered fruit is fruit or money found on public property that cannot be traced back to the original owner. Okay? Now a cow certainly is traceable because why? It has the brand on it. Okay? So you know who that cow belongs to. But say you're walking down the sidewalk, you see a quarter, you look around, there's not a soul in sight. There is no way for you to figure out who that quarter belongs to. There's no way for anybody to claim that that's their quarter. So therefore, that quarter belongs to you. You found it. Finders keepers. Okay? Losers weepers. Additionally, the Talmud provides several guidelines for ownership of a found treasure. Now, this is important because it's going to directly affect this parable. According to the Talmud, if a worker discovers a buried treasure in a person's field and exhumes it, that is, digs it up, brings it up completely out of the ground, the treasure belongs to the field owner. But if the individual leaves the treasure where he found it, okay, doesn't exhume it, he's entitled to it, legally entitled to it, if he can come into possession of the land in which it's found. And that Talmudic guideline provides the background for Jesus' parable. That man found the treasure. But it, did he exhume it? No. What did he do? He hid it again. He covered it back over with the dirt. Since it remained in the ground, he has the opportunity to lay claim to the treasure. Jesus continues by saying, from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. He sold everything he owned, sacrificed everything to buy that field. And what was his motivation? Joy. He understood the value of that treasure. That treasure was worth far more than anything else he possessed. Now notice here, he sold his possessions to fund the purchase. What does that tell us? That tells us that he took none of the treasure. Took none of it. If he had, he would have, well, he'd have been a thief at that point, okay? But he took none of it. He used his own funds to purchase it. The man who found the hidden treasure was not immoral, not unethical, but rather was an honest person. He could have taken the treasure without purchasing the field. No one would have been the wiser. But instead, he liquidates all he possesses and buys that field. And the owner sold him the field. Do you know what that indicates to us? That treasure did not belong to the owner. If the treasure belonged to the owner, the owner would have known it was in the field and he had never sold the field to the man in the first place. So the treasure belonged to neither. But this man acquired, legally acquired, that treasure. Let's go on to verse 45 and 46. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls and finds one pearl of great value. He went and sold all that he had and bought it. Here we have the costly pearl. Now, in this parable, the costly pearl, Jesus draws from the financial world or the business world. 
He introduces us to a merchant seeking fine pearls. Now the term merchant here is the Greek word emporos, which means that this gentleman is a wholesaler. Okay, He is someone who buys and resells merchandise, kind of like a middleman, if you will. And this particular wholesaler was in the jewelry business. How do we know he's in the jewelry business? Because he's seeking what? Pearls. Okay. He's looking for the most delicate pearls to resell. Now a pearl is formed by a grain of sand when it becomes trapped within an oyster. That oyster produces a secretion that coats that irritating grain of sand. Over time, the secretion grows and it hardens into what we know as the pearl. And interestingly, while gems are cut, like diamonds, to increase their beauty and value, pearls are left untouched. In fact, cutting a pearl would destroy its value. Now, in the Mediterranean world, divers fished for pearls in, either in the Red Sea or in the Persian Gulf. That's where all pearls came from during that time. Because of the difficulty and danger inherent to finding pearls, they became a status symbol for those who possessed great wealth. And the value of the pearl amongst the Gentiles of the first century AD cannot be understated. According to the ancient historian Suetonius, an entire Roman, Roman military campaign, listen to this, an entire Roman military campaign was funded by Emperor Vitilius in AD 69, by selling one of his mother's pearl earrings. That tells you the value of a pearl in the first century. He funded an entire military campaign. Now it's interesting. Pearls are not, were not particularly sought after by the Israelites. Because the oyster was deemed unclean. Leviticus 11, 10-11 states, Whatever is in the seas and in the rivers that does not have fins and scales, among all the teeming life of the water, among all the living creatures that are in the water, they are a detestable thing to you. Aren't you thankful for Acts chapter 10? And that sheet from heaven. I like oysters. If I lived before Acts 10, they were a detestable thing. <laughs> okay? So was shrimp and lobster and crab and all those other delicious things. We're all praising God. We live in an Acts 10 world. But let's continue. He says, they're detestable and they shall be abhorrent to you. You may not eat their flesh. And their carcasses you shall detest. In other words, you couldn't even touch them. Now, to get the pearl, you'd have to touch the what? The oyster. You'd be unclean. And so that is why when you search through the Hebrew Scriptures, there is little to no mention of pearls in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. Nevertheless, with the Hellenization of the Jewish people, as they began to embrace paganism and of the Greek culture in the post-exilic era, many Jews themselves sought the highly prized pearls during the first century. But Jesus goes on to say, upon finding one pearl of great value. And by the way, let me just insert this here. Obviously, Acts 10 is in view to Jesus because now he's comparing his kingdom to what? Something that has previously been deemed as abhorrent and detestable. Okay, It's no longer going to be detestable or abhorrent, is it? No. All right.
He says, upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. Now again, pearls are found only in the Red Sea and the Persian Gulf. So we can presume that this merchant went to a coastal city to negotiate with the local divers. And the cost of this pearl, this one pearl, was so great that he liquidated everything else. He liquidated all the other pearls that he owned to procure this one pearl. And so that's the presentation of the hidden treasure and the costly pearl. Let's move on now to the interpretation of the hidden treasure and the costly pearl parables. And as, with the, as we saw with the previous two parables, Matthew records no interpretation. Which implies that the original readers, the disciples, must have understood what Jesus was communicating. He had no need to explain it to them. But as modern, modern interpreters of God's word, we don't understand. So we've got to search the Hebrew scriptures to discover the meaning of the hidden treasure and the costly pearl parables. Furthermore, these are not fully scripted. They're just brief analogies that teach one central truth. And then in both of these parables, the truth is this. An individual discovers something of great value and sacrifices everything to possess it. I'll say it again. An individual discovers something of great value and sells everything, sacrifices everything to possess it. Let's begin with the parable of the hidden treasure. Now the parable of the hidden treasure is often misinterpreted. Many have purported that this treasure is salvation. Many have said, well, Jesus is talking about salvation and the man who uncovers the treasure is the sinner. Therefore, the parable teaches that the sinner purchases salvation by sacrificing or selling everything they possess. Friend, I'm here to tell you that there are several problems with that interpretation. First, salvation is never hidden in the Bible. The gospel is not a hidden treasure. Nowhere in Scripture has the gospel ever been hidden. Instead, the gospel has been boldly proclaimed. John the baptizer preached the gospel. Jesus preached the gospel. All disciples are committed to doing the same. Salvation is not a hidden treasure. Number two. Sinners do not seek salvation. Nope. Sinners do not seek salvation. Quoting Psalm 14 and Psalm 53, Paul says in Romans 3.11, There is no one who seeks God. End of the story, right? Jesus proclaims in Luke 19.10, The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. The lost don't go seeking Jesus. Jesus seeks them. Jesus seeks sinners. Jesus sought you. You didn't seek Him. You're a sinner. Sinners do not naturally do that. In Acts 26, Paul reports his commissioning to the gospel ministry. In 26.17, he records Jesus' words of his commissioning, saying, I am sending you, Paul, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sin, and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. Notice what Paul says, or notice what Jesus says to Paul. Paul, I'm sending you to open their eyes. The eyes of the unregenerate. Friends, sinners, unbelievers, the unregenerate, cannot open their eyes on their own. Now, yes, by God's grace, 
Every sinner can respond to the gospel in faith and repentance. But you need to understand that response is initiated by the call of the gospel. Paul explains in Romans 10, 13 to 14 and 17. Whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's a true statement. Anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. But listen to what Paul continues. How will they call on Him in whom they don't believe? They don't believe in God. Why are they going to call on Him? How will they believe in God if they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher, without someone to proclaim the gospel? So then faith comes from hearing And hearing by what? The word of Christ. It's the preaching of the gospel. It's the word of Christ that opens the eyes and ears of sinners so that they can respond to the call. They're not looking for it. They're not listening for it on their own. Someone has to take it to them. That's exactly what we see in the sower and the soil parables. The gospel seed is cast forth into the soil. And only when the soil, that is the human heart, receives the seed, which is the gospel, can they either accept or reject it. So again, sinners do not seek salvation. And let me give you a third reason why this is a bad interpretation. No sinner can purchase salvation. There is not a sinner ever born or ever will be born in this world who can procure or purchase their own salvation. Paul says in Ephesians 2, 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Friend, a gift freely given and re- is, is received. It's not purchased. If it's purchased, it's not a gift. You are purchased, sinner, by God. Out of the marketplace of sin, from the slave market of sin, you have been purchased from the dominion of Satan by God and His Son, Jesus Christ. You have not redeemed yourself. Paul expounds in Colossians 1, 13-14, God has rescued us from the domain of darkness. He has transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom, that is Jesus, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. Paul discloses in Titus 2.14 that Jesus gave himself for us to redeem, that is, purchase us from every lawless deed. Friend, if you're sitting here and listening and you're thinking that you have somehow purchased your own salvation, you have somehow murdered your own salvation, you're deceived. You're saved by the grace of God. You didn't save yourself. And you didn't go looking for him. He came looking for you. And that's why he called you with the gospel. Praise God when he does. He opens your eyes and ears so you can reply in faith and repentance. But it's nothing that you and I can do for ourselves. So correctly interpret it, what does this parable teach? You see, the man in the parable of the hidden treasure is again Jesus. And again, the field is the world. The treasure is Israel. Notably, regenerated Israel. And the idea that Israel is God's treasure is rooted in the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament. There's a term in the Hebrew called segula, which can be translated as possession or treasure. It refers to accumulated wealth such as money, jewels, or other valuables. Now, from atop Mount Sinai, Yahweh declared in in Exodus chapter 9 and verse 5, declared to Israel, He said, You, Israel, shall be my possession." My segula, my treasure. 
amongst all the people, for the all, all the earth is mine. Moses declared in Deuteronomy 14.2, You, Israel, are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord has chosen you to be a people for His own sagula, His own possession, His own treasure, out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Before entering into the promised land, Moses reminded Israel of their uniqueness and says in Deuteronomy 26, 18, the Lord has today declared you to be his people, a segula, a treasured possession as he promised you. Fast forward to Psalm, to 135 and verse 4. Psalm 135, verse 4. And in that psalm, the psalmist declares, he confirms, for the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel... For his own sagula, his own treasure, his own possession. You see, every Jewish born child knows that Israel is God's treasure. And so when Jesus refers to this treasure, the disciples immediately knew he was speaking of Israel. But they would also understood something else about that treasure. They would also understand that while Israel, the nation of Israel, is Yahweh's treasure, not every Jewish person is part of that treasure. Because in Malachi 3.17, Yahweh says, They will be mine on that day that I prepare my own segula, my own treasure, and I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. Now that day that he refers to in Malachi 3.17 is something we know as the day of the Lord. Now the Jewish day is a 24-hour period that begins with sunset and ends with sunset. Okay? The Jewish day works a little different. Still 24 hours, sunset to sunset. So a Jewish day has five parts. It begins with a sunset, followed by night, followed by sunrise, followed by day, ends with sunset. Now when we refer prophetically to a day such as the day of the Lord, the day of God, the day of Christ, we're, re- we're using the term day to refer to a period with a specific beginning and end. So the day of the Lord, which is what Malachi is referring to here, begins with the great tribulation and ends with the great white throne judgment. Okay? Let me give you a quick overview of the day of the Lord from this perspective. The day of the Lord begins with a sunset. Sunset on the day of the Lord is marked with the covenant between Israel and the Antichrist which is the, is the beginning of the great tribulation. During that time, God is going to pour out 21 judgments on the earth. The night of great tribulation ends with sunrise. Sunrise corresponds to the return of Christ. Next comes daytime. During the day, the, we have the physical resurrection of Old Testament era saints and tribulation saints. We have the judgments of Israel and the Gentile nations. We have the restoration of Israel as a redeemed nation. We have the binding of Satan. We have the millennial reign of Christ. But that day is going to end with a sunset. That sunset represents Satan's final revolt and the great white throne judgment. The day of the Lord. Returning to Malachi 3.17, Yahweh says that on the day of the Lord, He's going to prepare His treasure Israel. That's the point of the great tribulation. To prepare His, His treasure. And when God prepares Israel in the future, it is only going to be comprised of the righteous or the redeemed. Listen to verse 18 of Malachi 3. So you will again distinguish between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who doesn't serve Him. So when He digs up that treasure, 
The treasure is only going to be comprised of the righteous, the ones who serve Him. Now remember, Israel's leaders rejected the Messiah. The offer of the kingdom was taken away from them and set aside for a future generation, a future nation of Israel that would be redeemed. Remember, the, king, the disciples are wondering what's going to happen to the kingdom if God has taken the offer away from the nation of Israel. He's giving them the answer right here in the hidden treasure. Currently, Israel is the hidden treasure in the world. The fact that they are hidden refers to the various dispersions they have experienced. Assyria dispersed the ten northern tribes, the kingdom of Ephraim. Babylon dispersed the two southern tribes, the kingdom of Judah. And to this present day, the tribes of Israel are still dispersed around the world. During Jesus' first advent, He uncovered the treasure of Israel. He came to them to establish the kingdom, but with their rejection, He hid them again. In the field. In the world. But then Jesus did something. He just didn't leave and forget about them. He went out and purchased the field, that is the world. And the purchase of the world cost Jesus everything. He laid aside the glories of heaven. He took upon Himself human flesh. He experienced in that flesh separation from the Godhead. And He physically laid down His life. He did all of this to purchase the world so He could own the treasure Israel. Paul explains in 2 Corinthians 5.19, God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself not counting their trespass against them. The Apostle John adds in 1 John 2, 2, Jesus Himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for what? The sins of the whole world. So when He purchased the world with His life, with His shed blood, He now owns the treasure hid within the world, which is Israel. And when He returns after the Great Tribulation, at the end of this present age, He's going to uncover Israel, He's going to dig up that treasure, and He's going to restore them. And that restored Israel will be comprised of Jews redeemed during the past age, during the great tribulation, and the future age to come. And as Paul says in Romans eleven twenty six, then all Israel shall be saved. Redeemed national Israel is going to be the central kingdom, the central nation in God's kingdom, the Messianic kingdom. And the lengths to which King Jesus has gone to preserve and redeem Israel demonstrates their value to the kingdom. Now let's go to the costly pearl. Just like with the hidden treasure, the costly pearl is often misinterpreted. Perhaps you've sung or heard that well-known hymn, I Found the Pearl of Greatest Price. Now that hymn writer claims in stanza one that the merchant is the sinner and the pearl is Christ. Let me read you stanza one. I found the pearl of greatest price, my heart doth sing for joy. And sing I must to Christ I have, oh what a Christ have I. That interpretation purports that the sinner purchases Christ and by default salvation, by sacrificing or selling everything he possesses. We can apply the same issues with the, that we raised with the, costly, uh, with the hidden treasure to the costly pearl. Number one, the merchant cannot be a sinner because sinners do not seek Jesus or salvation. We've established that from the scripture. Again, Ephesians 2.1, sinners are dead and trespasses and sin. Okay. Second, the merchant cannot be the sinner. Because you and I as sinners cannot purchase salvation. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. That's what we've purchased. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. 
So what then is the correct interpretation of this parable? Correctly interpreted, the pearl is the church. Now if the treasure is Israel, then it stands to reason that the pearl is the church. You see, while God speaks of Israel as his treasure throughout the Hebrew Scriptures, there is no mention of pearls, remember? No mention of pearls in the Hebrew Scriptures. Interestingly, there's no mention of the church in the Hebrew Scriptures, is there? I want to consider for a moment some, par- some comparisons between the pearl and the church. Pearls are found in oysters. Oysters live in the what? The sea. In biblical prophecy, the sea or the water symbolizes the Gentile nations. In Daniel 7, the four beasts rise up out of the sea, representing the four Gentile world kingdoms. In Isaiah 17, 12, the prophet compares the nations to the seas, saying, Alas, the uproar of many people who roar like the roaring of the seas and the rumbling of nations, who rush on like the rumbling of mighty waters. In Isaiah 60 and verse 5, the nations are parallel to the seas, saying, Because the abundance of the sea will be turned to you, the wealth of the nations will come to you. And Yahweh pronounces in Ezekiel 6.3, I'm going to bring up many nations against you as the sea brings up its waves. And the picture of the sea or the waves as representative of Gentile nations continues into the New Testament in the Revelation of John chapter 17 and verse 15. The water which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. So the pearl comes out of where? Gentile nations. Now just as an aside before I move on, I'd be remiss not to comment on Revelation 17. There in that chapter, the angel reveals to John the future judgment of the apostate church. The apostate church is referred to as a harlot, sitting upon a scarlet beast, having seven heads and ten horns. In that parable, in that vision, the church, the apostate church, is a harlot because of its immorality, its paganism. It is a church that has adopted the pagan practices of, the, of ancient Babylon. And that beast, that scarlet beast, very similar to the scarlet beast of Daniel 7, with seven heads and ten horns, is the kingdoms and kings of the world. This apostate church draws its power from the kingdoms and, kingdom and kings of this world. Friends, let Revelation 17, you know, remember John said in Revelation, let him who has an ear hear, hear this. The true church of Christ must never, ever adopt pagan practices. Nor must the church of Christ ever become entwined in the politics or empowered by politicians. Christ's church must maintain her purity. And Christ's church must maintain her distinctiveness. Let us not be the harlot. Let us not commit spiritual adultery with these pagan practices and these pagan politicians. Now the pearl, again, comes out of the sea. Represents the peoples or the nations of the world. When John sees the church in heaven in Revelation chapter 5 and verse 9, he says it comprises people from every tribe and tongue, people and nation. The church isn't just Jewish, it's Jewish in what? Gentile. Also, think about the pearl. It's not cut, is it? Unlike every other gem that is cut, the pearl remains untouched. And unlike gems, it is produced by a living organism. Okay? A living organism produces a pearl. So too the church is produced by a living organism called the God-man, Jesus Christ. That church, or that secreting fluid in that oyster rather, is produced because of the suffering from the sand. 
and so a pearl is formed. And so also the church is created by another kind of fluid called the blood of Christ that results from His suffering on the cross for your sin and mine. Peter explains in 1 Peter 1, 18-19, You were not redeemed with perishable things like silver and gold from your futile way of life, which you inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Now over time, what happens in that pearl? The accretion forms into a stone called a pearl. And so too, through Christ's blood, According to 1 Peter 2 and verse 4, believers have become living stones being built up into a spiritual house that is the church. And just as the pearl grows through gradual accretion, so does the church. Remember, the church began with 120 people on the day of Pentecost. At the end of the day, 3,000 people. A few weeks later, 5,000 more are at it. Months turn to years and what happens? The church spreads and grows to the uttermost parts of the earth. Again, note that pearls are not cut or carved. The value of a pearl is in its unity, in its wholeness. So too the church is a unity. Ephesians 4, 4-6, there's one body, one spirit, just as you are all called into one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father, all of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And also notice how many pearls were purchased. Just one. Just one. Though the church is comprised of many bodies, many members rather, it is one body. 1 Corinthians 12, 12 to 13, For even as one body, as the body is one, and yet are many members. And all members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ's body. For by one Spirit we are all baptized into that one body, whether you're Jew or Gentile, whether you're slave or free, we're all made to drink of one Spirit. The pearl is the church. And that merchant is Jesus. Jesus sold everything to purchase and redeem the church. For you know, 2 Corinthians 8, 9, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake, my sake, He became poor, so that through His poverty, we might become rich. He sacrificed everything, including His life, to purchase the church. And the lengths to which He went to purchase and redeem the church demonstrates our value to Him. Before I close, I want to take notice of one significant thing in these two parables. Notice in the first parable, the kingdom is compared to the merchant, the, the, the uh, person, who, the worker rather, who sold everything. But here, the emphasis is on the person. So the first parable, it's on the treasure. The second parable, rather, it's on the merchant. Why? What's the difference? Why is Israel the central focus of the first, but Jesus the central focus of the second? It's very simple. We have to understand our relationship to the kingdom. The kingdom offered originally to the nation of Israel. God was to be their king and they were to be his people. They're the focus of the first parable because when Jesus establishes his kingdom, they're once again going to be his people and he's going to be their king. They have been and will always be his treasure. But the focus in the second one, even though he's writing about the church, the focus is on him. Because our relationship as kingdom citizens is different. We're not going to be ruled over by Jesus. We're going to reign with Jesus in his kingdom. And so the emphasis here is upon the king and the price he paid for his bride. The dowry he paid 
for his bride, the church, the pearl of great price. Now, folks, I want to step on some toes. I figure I'll just be honest up front with you. As we bring these two parables to bear in our lives, I want you to notice in both parables, there is a restructuring of priority. The worker and the merchant liquidate all of their assets to procure the treasure and the pearl. Each individual understood the value of what was before them and they willingly sacrificed everything to obtain that item. And the reason was they understood the value. They understood the value of the treasure. They understood the value of the pearl. And so, friend, I want to ask you in closing. Do you consider God's kingdom valuable? Are you willing to sell or sacrifice everything for God's kingdom? Listen, to be honest, there are many believers who are unwilling to reprioritize their life for the God's kingdom. Maybe that's you. Hey, listen, I'll do God's kingdom on my term and my time. I'm not going to be inconvenienced. Hmm. What kind of value have you placed on God's kingdom? In Acts chapter 2 and verse 42, Luke provides a snapshot of kingdom life. He says they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. The key word there in Acts 2.42 is continually devoting. Proskotereo. To persist in an activity. Those new believers reprioritized their life so that they could persistently listen to the teaching of Scripture. So that they could persistently partake in fellowship with other believers. So that they could persistently partake in the Lord's Supper. So that they could persistently meet together for prayer. How many of those four activities, that's the four basic activities of a church, how many of those four activities do you place value on today? Do you prioritize your life around the preaching and teaching of the Scriptures? Do you prioritize your life around fellowshipping with one another? Do you prioritize your life around the celebration of the Lord's Supper? Do you prioritize your life around times of corporate prayers? Listen, I'm going to be completely honest with you, friend, in case you won't be honest with yourself. We come up with excuses for why we cannot and will not prioritize the kingdom. And perhaps that may be you. I want you to take a moment, I want to challenge you to consider what things in your life are taking priority over the things of God. And I want you to confess them. Not to me, to Him. And I want you to set a right prioritizing the things of God. Jesus said in Luke 9.26, No one after putting his hand to the plow looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Friend, you've put your hand to the plow the day you profess salvation. Well, if you're not getting your priorities straight, you're looking back. And he says those who are unwilling to rearrange their priorities, those unwilling to sacrifice everything for God's kingdom, are in reality unworthy of His kingdom. My prayer for you and for me is that we might be worthy of God's kingdom. So friends, let's get right those priorities that have been out of whack. Let's get them realigned, let's get them straight, and let's get back to doing the king's business his way. 
Let's pray. Father, we beseech you through our Savior, Jesus Christ. You're the Holy One, and we come before you as holy and blameless through the blood of Jesus. Father, I praise you for the value that you have placed upon your people the value that you've placed upon Israel, the value that you've placed upon the church. I praise you, Father, that you have not cast away Israel. And knowing that, we can be confident that you will not cast away the church. But Father, we confess that your kingdom, your church, does not have priority in our lives that it ought to have. We confess that there are things, even seemingly good things, that we value more than your kingdom and your church. Father, forgive us of spiritual harlotry. Restore us to the place of fellowship with you. Father, teach us the value of Israel. Teach us the value of the church. Keep us from ourselves and from the evil one who seeks to place before us those things that would take priority above your kingdom. And so, Father, we pray that until your kingdom comes, that we might glorify you with our lives and that we might praise you with our lips. To this we say, Amen.